Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics, ejected. I will take a break while uh, you're asked Sir? to leave. A lawyer for protest organizers is removed from the commission room as Justice Paul Rouleau hears testimony from the ministers of public safety and intergovernmental affairs. We'll show you what happened. Also. Belarus is complicit in Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Sanctioning the Lukashenko regime. Ottawa announces new measures as the Belarusian opposition leader meets with Canadian leaders. We will speak to Svetlana Sikonskaya. And... Frankly, I'm, I'm baffled by, by Premier Houston's position. Imposing a consumer carbon tax after Nova Scotia refuses. Federal ministers don't hide their frustration and coming up we will get some reaction from Nova Scotia's environment minister. This is Primetime Politics. Hello everyone, I'm Michael Serapio. We begin with the Public Order Emergency Commission and on a day when both the Public Safety Minister and the Intergovernmental Affairs Minister were scheduled to testify, unexpectedly it turned out to be a testy moment that dominated this 28th day of public hearings, a moment between a protest lawyer and the inquiry's commissioner. Take a listen. Government of Canada has redacted without lawful authority all of these statements from these staffers and have suppressed records. I have, have no idea here, at this point where this is going, so I'm going to take the break. And if you uh, can speak to Commission Council, which I, I think I've repeated many times, is the way to at least raise the issue. Yes. And then we'll see if they can resolve it yes. or not. But we have a schedule. And Sir, the, sh the schedule is, is not as important as getting to the so truth. They, there's no question we want to get at the truth, but you know what? It's a very complex issue, and it's not all about what you want. The application, if you want to do it, you've been advised it's to be done in writing, not in the middle of the Sir, presentation. Sir, we filed two motions so in writing I'm, at your direction that you've refused to rule on with respect I'm, to the redaction of documents from the Government of Canada. You're speaking, that has not I'm been speaking. ruled on and okay. they've been filed for I days. I will take a break while uh, you're asked Sir? to leave. I will return in five minutes if uh, security could deal with the council. Well, with more, we're now joined by Tonda McCharles, parliamentary reporter for the Toronto Star, who's covering the inquiry, and Joanna Smith, the Ottawa Bureau Chief for the Canadian Press. Hello to the two of you. Hi, Michael. So, hi, Michael. Hi there. So I do want to begin with what took place, the ejection from the room, because that exchange that we heard, it really seems to go to two issues here. One has to do with the Public Safety Minister's Director of Communications, the other uh, about documents the government is releasing to the inquiry and portions of those documents that are redacted. Now, Brendan Miller is the lawyer who was ejected. He says both are needed to get a full picture of what happened. How true is that statement, Tonda? Well, I mean, the judge ruled not much longer after that uh, whole scene broke out in the inquiry room that, in fact, the documents were rightfully redacted, that the evidence which he got to see unredacted 
was either not relevant or was protected by cabinet privilege. So he did basically rule against what the convoy lawyer was saying, uh, that it was so, so relevant that it had to be brought in immediately and that he had to be able to call one of the minister's staffers who was in the room. Look, it was much ado about much less than meets the eye, really, because... Uh, fundamentally, the, the lawyer for the convoy is putting forward a theory that, um, you know, the whole attempt uh, by... He, he, he's putting forward a theory that there was a political attempt by staffers in the government to paint the convoy protesters as extremists from the get-go, from before the convoy arrived, in order to be able to invoke um, emergency powers against them. And so it, he's pulling together all kinds of... Uh, strings out of thin air somewhat, and in the process, uh, you know, is is really, I think, casting um, uh, a bad light on actually what the convoy organizers themselves are, are, are trying to argue here, which is that the, the act itself and the, the government's use of it was an overreach. Uh, it's, it's off on a tangent, if you will. It's quite difficult to follow, and it's resulted in a libel notice being uh, issued today against the lawyer for espousing those views. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, not only did uh, Justice Rouleau uh, issue his own judgment on those redacted portions of documents, uh, Mr. Miller was allowed back into the inquiry room. And, and you know, Joanna, given what we just heard from Tonda, I'm wondering from what you saw, did his line of questioning reveal any new pertinent detail or information? Not really. You know, as Tonda said, he's this lawyer seems to be really focused on this idea that that not only the government was trying to paint everyone as extremists from the get-go, but was engaging in some sort of subterfuge, really playing up the idea, like taking advantage of the fact these protests were really divisive and sort of you know, he's putting forward this uh, this unsubstantiated theory he has that the government might have actually gone so far as to plant some operatives like agents provocateurs who were responsible for the presence of hateful imagery such as swastikas and Confederate flags in the crowd as a way to influence public opinion. And, and like Tonda said, a lot of this is, is really seems to be strings coming from from all over the air. So I think, you know, he keeps pushing this point and it's it's really raising the ire of the commissioner and that's sort of the the tenure of those exchanges today. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that uh, it took a lot of oxygen out of the room today, but let's switch over to the testimony that we did here, uh, beginning with Marco Mendicino, the public safety minister. Now, he talked about the RCMP, cease ass assessments, but also, uh, I guess, shared some of his reasoning for invoking the act. Uh, take a listen right now to Marco Mendicino. My concern in my capacity as the Minister for Public Safety is that if we don't equip police with the additional tools and the authorities that they need to specifically address the gaps that they had been consistently briefing us on, then that might lead to more violence. And so we also had to weigh the risks of not taking the decision to invoke. And, and so that we, we weighed in um, the potential concerns around um, radicalization, uh, but ultimately we came down on the side of invoking. Now, the public safety minister's uh, conversation, his testimony today, took up a, a lot of time. I'm wondering, Tonda, from listening to Marco Mendicino, do you have better insight now into his justification for invoking the act? 
Well, uh, to this extent, I mean, we've heard now, um, actually, the third minister is on the stand and he just completed uh, his examination in chief. So, look, we've heard from three different ministers what, what was, I guess, the salient point for them. Uh, minister Blair yesterday talked about the border blockades and the economic damage being what tipped it over into a national emergency for him. In Marco Mendicino's mind today, what tipped it over for him, it seems, was uh, a, a conversation he had with the RCMP commissioner around the weapons in Coots. And this was at a critical moment just before a cabinet meeting on Sunday, February 13th, where they were going to weigh invoking the Emergencies Act. And he says he doesn't recall here seeing her email that expressed her reservations about the Emergencies Act, but he does very clearly recall her alarm at what the RCMP uh, believed was present at the Coots blockade in a trailer there. Uh, they had undercover RCMP officers who she said lives were on the line. Uh, if word were to leak out about a pending raid on the, the blockade in Coots, um, that ultimately produced a cache of weapons and charges against 13 individuals. So look, for Mendicino, he says that was the tipping point for him. Um, but he very much made the point, it wasn't about just that, or it wasn't just about the Ottawa convoy, which he called, uh, had resulted in uh, utter mayhem, I think is the word he used uh, for Ottawa. He said, let's call a spade a spade. It was chaos. Well, uh, he says it wasn't just about Ottawa or just about Coots. He said it was, in his words, the totality of what was going on across the country and that they really didn't think that police were effectively using, even if they had existing tools, were effectively using them. Okay, not effectively using them, according to the minister. But, you know, we, we did hear from the RCMP. We've heard from the Ottawa police. We heard from the Ontario Provincial Police. And each one, when they testified, they, they stated they did, not, they did not ask for the act to be invoked. So talk to us, Joanna, about how the minister responded to that. I think it was the sense that he, that wasn't the impression he was given, right? We, we had heard about this email that Brenda Lucky, the RCMP commissioner, had sent to Mendicino's staff about this idea that not all tools have been exhausted and he said you know that never that never made it to me as tonda said that conversation he had with lucky he really came away with the impression that she supported the invocation of the emergencies act he went to, so far as to say this was a threshold moment for me so that that was sort of your, your sort of understanding that um you know maybe this was a, a huge issue of miscommunication which was frankly a problem throughout the whole protest to begin with but you're you're sort of coming away i think with the impression that everyone was was viewing things through a slightly different light everyone was maybe coming into things with preconceived notions everyone was making a lot of assumptions about what everyone else was thinking and how and why they were going to act so i feel like that's a that's a common thread that we saw reinforced today with mendicino and and there was another interesting moment when he was sort of asked you know uh, if you had to sort of pick um, protests and, and responses to protests, you know, is, is that sort of an appropriate thing to do? And he, he, in terms of, you know, responding to the border versus responding to Ottawa, and he he says, you know, that's not the kind of choice or dilemma you want to be in on, on where you want to focus your energies. Um, and he was really sort of talking about this in the context of this question of um, potential political interference in police operations. So he said, you know, elected government should... Dear Claire, that that's a that's a slippery slope. So if we're if we're talking about a situation that's where his thinking is, and if the RCMP is according to him telling him that that this is what we need, then you can kind of start to see how how these decisions ended up being made. Mm -hmm. uh, quickly running out of time, so I'm going to ask for very. Oh. That, well, I was just 
Go ahead. I, was go just, ahead, I just want to quickly say that notwithstanding what reserv whatever reservations Lucky conveyed to the minister or didn't convey, uh, in her letter is a whole list of bullet points of useful tools that the RCMP uh, thought the Emergencies Act could give them and how they would be used. So uh, it wasn't as if she was just saying, don't do it. Okay. Now, you reference the third minister, and right now Dominic LeBlanc, the intergovernmental affairs minister, is on the stand at the time of this taping, not yet complete. So very quickly from both of you, if you will, what are you keeping an ear out for right now? Tonda, I'll begin with you. Well, look, Minister LeBlanc, I found what was most interesting so far about all of his testimony is this glimpse behind the scenes uh, of what was going on in the private conversations, minister to minister and premiers to ministers. And what LeBlanc revealed was just the scathing series of texts that he got from the Alberta prime minister, or premier rather, um, uh, saying that, you know, the uh, that Ottawa's basically leaving him hanging out to dry, that they brought in these vaccine mandates that are he called dumb political theater. Uh, the, and, and he just ripped uh, Minister LeBlanc, who conveyed that to two of his cabinet colleagues in a text. And then we saw also other uh, tensions between the Ontario government and Marco Mendicino when he was pressing the Ontario government for what more they could do and what plan they could bring up. Uh, you know, <laughs> it looks like the Ontario Sol Jen, the Solicitor General, basically told him to take a flying leap, that she said, I'm, you're not the boss of me, I'll, I'll spare you the, the language she used. But mm -hmm. uh, look, it, behind the scenes, LeBlanc was at the centre of that and he got a real taste of it and that's what he can there was big pressure on the government. Okay, very quickly, Joanna, and for you, with when it comes to Mr. LeBlanc? Just how important uh, relationships and poor relationships could have played a role in all of this. You know, there were, as, as Tonda was saying, he was really scathing messages from Kenny about how the feds were reacting to this. But you saw that little group chat between LeBlanc and Al Transport Minister Al Gabra and Public Safety Minister Marco Mendicino, this sort of, you know, I think at one point, Al Gabra, where we saw texted, speaking of bonkers, when referring to, to Kenny. So you can sort of tell these uh, not great relations between all those people, right. and maybe that also played a role in how things went down. Well, appreciate the time and helping us walk through uh, what we've seen today. Tonda McCharles, Joanna Smith, thank you for the time. Thank you. Thanks, Michael. And a reminder, we do have continuing coverage of the Public Order Emergency Commission right here for you on CPAC. You can also tune into our live stream of each day's testimony. You can find that on our website, cpac.ca. And that is also where you'll find the full proceedings because we are archiving it for you and it will be made available for you on demand. Well, July the 1st, 2023, we'll see a new tax imposed on three Atlantic provinces, Newfoundland and Labrador, PEI and Nova Scotia, all three will start paying consumer carbon taxes. Now, they join Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba and Ontario, who are already subjected to the federal regime, this after failing to create a provincial plan that met federal standards. For his part, the Nova Scotia Premier did write a letter to the Federal Environment Minister ahead of today's announcement, stating, Nova Scotia had its own plan and that the imposition of a carbon tax was unnecessarily punishing for Nova Scotians. Take a listen to how the Environment Minister responded to that. The fact that Nova Scotia had a plan is, is a good thing, but, but it's, it's simply not true that their plan was better without pricing because they can have a, the plan and pricing and they make their plan even better as we're doing at the federal level. I find it... Um, unconscionable, really, that Premier Houston would have this type of attitude after what we've seen in Atlantic Canada with the passage of the most severe 
hurricane in the history of Canada. We, we've never seen anything like this. So that was the federal minister, uh, Stephen Guibault. Uh, minister Hallman, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Listen, I, I want to first uh, get your reaction to what you just heard from Minister Guibault. He seems to be reacting to an earlier letter that your premier wrote in which he pushes back on Ottawa's carbon pricing. Uh, your reaction to what you just heard? Look, uh, no, Nova Scotia is a leader in confederation on, on climate change policies, and we have been for quite some time. And um, you know, last fall, we, we passed uh, the most ambitious piece of climate change uh, legislation in the country. Um, we have the strongest greenhouse gas emission targets uh, in Canada, 53% below 2005 levels by, by 2030, 80% um, renewable commitment uh, by 2030. Um, so I'm, I'm confident in our, our leadership on, on the climate change uh, file. Um, I, I, don't, I don't believe, um, I don't believe um, rhetoric like that is, is necessary because this is, this is a policy difference. We agree on, uh, with the federal government on climate action. However, we, we have a different path and we've proposed a different path. Uh, Nova Scotia does not believe a carbon tax in a time of historic global inflation uh, is, is necessary to achieve greenhouse gas reductions. Uh, rather, the best path forward uh, for this jurisdiction in Canada is, is uh, aggressively um, you know, developing green hydrogen, offshore wind, uh, the unbelievable power uh, and potential of, of the Bay of Fundy. And that's what we've been proposing for Ottawa, to Ottawa for, for a number of months. Work with us on those things. Um, I can't help but feel there's been a missed opportunity uh, on the part of the federal government here to, to, um, to look at alternatives uh, to adapt to climate change. Okay, uh, me... But unfortunately, Ottawa hasn't, uh, hasn't done that. Well, well, let's dig down a bit more on the point you're trying to make here, because I'm, I'm kind of wondering what is the scenario that you're envisioning. You're talking about alternate sources uh, of energy as one path forward. But what about the bigger picture that Nova Scotia is proposing? Because it's not just Ottawa, uh, but many global economists, policymakers around the world, they do argue that carbon pricing on consumer uh, consumption is one of the best tools to combat climate change. Well, certainly uh, to change and alter behavior, I, I totally get that as an environment minister. Um, the price on pollution on the industrial side, um, you know, we certainly uh, put forward plans on that and put legislation in plan uh, legislation in place that's that is compliant with the, the federal requirements for carbon. Um, I'm not opposed to a carbon tax philosophically in any way. I think, quite frankly, to to alter behavior, I, I get that, but. Policy cannot be implemented uh, uh, in a vacuum. It needs to be. It needs to recognize the realities we're in. And Nova Scotians and Canadians, I believe, want practical and realistic alternatives to fossil fuels. So let's begin to develop that in a very assertive manner. Um, Canada doesn't have, at the moment, um, offshore wind uh, development. That's that's remarkable. I mean, I've I, I've had I've had the opportunity. I've been fortunate to be able to, to visit the, the Baltic states, uh, to Denmark, and I've been able to see the offshore wind development there. It's hard to believe that we don't have that. And that's what we were saying. Well, in all not not for lack of not for lack of trying, though, because I don't have to tell you, it has been attempted in this country and the wind speeds at, at the ocean level, at the sea level, oftentimes is very is almost too powerful. So it's not for lack of trying. Well, look, we have a real opportunity here um, in Nova Scotia. Um, we have unbelievable um, potential for the winds, and that's what we've been saying. Uh, 
uh, rather than and put our energy towards a carbon tax, which in a time of global inflation that we haven't seen since the, the, 19, the late 1970s, um, let's take a different path uh, to achieve our climate targets in Nova Scotia and in Canada. And that's what we were proposing uh, to Ottawa. Um, you know, uh, carbon tax uh, is one tool that can be utilized to uh, adapt and mitigate the realities of, of climate change. And again, in a time of historic inflation, in a time where, where Nova Scotians and Canadians, their pocketbooks are, are hurting pretty bad, uh, it's not it's not it's not needed alternatives, especially when alternatives are, are available. Well, what about and, the rebates? Uh, what about the rebates, though? Because, you know, Ottawa does make that argument. And it in other jurisdictions, this is what happens. People pay for the carbon tax up front. Arguably, it, it influences their behavior at the cash register. But then they come back with rebates to, to offset the amount that they're paying uh, more when they actually buy something. And uh, in Nova Scotia's case, the, the rebates will even be higher for rural Nova Scotians. So we look. We we have a lot of we have a lot of concerns in terms of how the the formula how they developed you know those rebates because uh, I know they they had mentioned that in the the uh, the briefing today um, you know uh, so a province like Nova Scotia forty percent of our residents are are rural um, so you know getting they still have to get to work they still have to get kids to school and to their activities uh, the upfront costs. Uh, uh, we have big concerns uh, of those upfront costs on people's pocketbooks, uh, especially when, uh, in our uh, analysis, it's not going to do anything to reduce greenhouse gas emissions um, because people still need to drive. They still need to get to work. They still need to go about their lives. And, um, and that's why we put forward, I think, you know, practical, realistic alternatives uh, to a carbon tax. And, um, you know, yes, there are rebates, but... Uh, you know, we have concerns that those rebates aren't going to be enough to offset uh, those costs. And I want to assure residents in my province that their provincial government is certainly going to be looking at um, supplementary supports that the provincial government can offer uh, long term and short term. Uh, but again, you know, a carbon tax in a time of, of high inflation such as this, it's we don't believe it's the right policy tool. And, um, you know, and fundamentally, that's 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 uh, that's where we're at. And. You know, I don't believe any policy, uh, you know, being a student of history is, is, is should ever be absolute. Um, you know, um, what we're doing is we're questioning a, an approach uh, on the part of the federal government. And uh, we feel a carbon tax is not is not needed at a time like like this. Minister, really appreciate the time. Thank you for it. Thank you. The federal government has just announced new sanctions against the regime of Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko. They come as the exiled opposition leader of Belarus, Svetlana Sihanouskaya, visits Canada and makes appeals to the Trudeau government. In part, she's looking for non-military aid for Belarusians who are going against their own government and defending Ukraine from Russian invasion. Take a listen to the Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie as she announced today's new sanctions. Two things we're really looking into. Obviously, the fact that there are gross human rights violations in, uh, in Belarus, and also because Belarus is complicit in Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And we want to make sure that we amplify democratic voices within Belarus, including yours. So this morning, you all saw, we announced new sanctions against uh, people and companies that are linked to the war in Ukraine. And our goal is really to make sure that 
uh, impunity is not an option, and we put maximum pressure on these uh, Belarusian individuals and entities. We are now joined by Svetlana Sihanouskaya. Thank you for being with us tonight. Good evening. Now, your trip to Canada is not yet over, but already the Foreign Affairs Minister has announced further sanctions against the Lukashenko regime. Are you happy with what you've heard so far? Uh, I have to say that, uh, first of all, I'm grateful to Canada uh, for its strong commitment to democratic principles and staying with the uh, Burson fight. You know, I welcome the sanctions imposed by the Canadian government. You know, it's a clear sign that uh, Lukashenko's crimes will not stay unpunished. Uh, but, uh, you know, I'm, I, I have been asking for more sanctions on those who are uh, assisting uh, to the regime, you know, to uh, propaganda outlets, TV channels, newspapers, military officials who support this war. And uh, the sanctions that are imposed are rather good, but I have to underline the sanctions work only with the uh, assistance to civil society who need energy to continue their fight. So on our meeting, I asked more assistance to our media to counter propaganda, to our human rights defending centers, to different uh, cultural and uh, national initiatives. So this two-sided approach will be more efficient. So more aid for your media, more aid for your human rights organizations. You're also, uh, to my understanding, looking for non-lethal military aid from Canada. And that goes to Russia's illegal invasion of Ukraine, which the Lukashenko regime has been helping. What kind of aid would you like to see? Uh, you know that several hundreds of uh, Belarusian military volunteers are fighting shoulder to shoulder with uh, Ukrainians. So we uh, ask Canada to support uh, Belarusian volunteers uh, within Ukrainian army with non-lethal equipment, warm clothing, uh, first aid kits. Uh, and I understand that they are serving in Ukrainian army, but if such uh, humanitarian aid will be sent directly to Belarusian regiment, it will be very important um, symbolic sign for them that they are noticed, that they are not forgotten, that Canada knows about their bravery uh, within Ukrainian army. So direct aid for Belarusian fighters. Uh, now you're also hoping for closer diplomatic ties with Canada. Uh, you're not in Belarus right now, but you have established a, a government in exile. What kind of ties are you hoping to achieve? Uh, so first of all, we need a constant uh, like person who will uh, coordinate our actions and the uh, actions of Canadian government. So uh, I asked uh, Minister um, Julie to um, give mandate uh, to Ambassador to Lithuania to give mandate to work with democratic forces of Belarus. It will be good. Uh, I am sure it will be good collaboration. Uh, also, I ask uh, Canada to be our voice in uh, G7 uh, or G20, uh, for example, you know, to keep Belarus in focus of uh, the most powerful countries. Now, you still have meetings uh, this week scheduled with the Prime Minister, also members of the Canadian Senate. Uh, overall, though, what message do you hope those politicians here, the leaders here, and really listen to while you're in Canada? So first of all, I want uh, 
people in Canada and parliamentarians and government to uh, distinguish Belarusian regime from Belarusian people. Belarusian regime became accomplice uh, in this war against Ukraine, and Belarusian people are uh, fiercely opposing this. 86% of Belarusians are against uh, participation of Belarus in this war. Also distinguish Belarus and Russia. We have absolutely different context and uh, moods uh, in, inside society is absolutely different. Also, I uh, underline that uh, Belarus uh, participation of Belarusian regime shouldn't be overlooked uh, in this situation because very often uh, the world is talking about the war crimes of uh, Kremlin, but um, uh, don't mention uh, Lukashenko's participation. Uh, but he has to share or to bear the full responsibility for his crimes against humanity, against Belarusians, and for uh, his war crimes. So also I um, ask uh, Canadians to uh, demand withdrawal of Russian troops not only from Ukraine but also from Belarus because at the moment about 12,000 uh, Russian soldiers are uh, situated in uh, our army and it's de facto military occupation. Sviatlana Sihanovskaya, thank you so much for the time. Very much uh, happy to be speaking with you tonight. Thank you. And that is our program for tonight. I'm Michael Serapio. For everyone here at CPAC, thank you for watching. We'll see you again tomorrow.